Welcome everyone, those joining from here and those joining from afar. Today's another session of Samsara Nirvana and Buddha Nature, SNBN in short. Rather, I would like to call it SNN or BNN. <laughs> so we'll sit in quiet meditation for a few minutes to settle our body and mind. Try to focus your attention on any chosen object, be that be your breath, or an image of Buddha, or any particular attitude such as love, compassion, etc. And try to stay with that with all your attention, awareness, qualified by such factors as clarity, attention, and a sense of delight. While trying to stay with the object, Strike the balance between pushing too hard and being too careless. Strike the middle way. Let's now stay for a while in this mental mode of bodhicitta that we have just cultivated by saying those lines of refuge and generating bodhicitta. As a way of bolstering this, try to think over this stanza that we came across last time when Venerable was teaching from Shantideva, which runs like this. If I wish to be happy, then I should make others happy. Or rather, then I should not make just myself happy. If I wish to be protected, then I should protect all sentient beings. <laughs> 
was in the Guru Puja, we come across this self-centeredness is to do away to all torments, cherishing others, rather cherishing all mothers, is the basis of all excellent qualities. Inspire me to make the core practice, make my core practice exchanging of self for others. Try to think along these lines and think about the logic, the rational behind these teachings. In seeing how self Self-centeredness is the doorway to all torments, be that torments of being born in lower realms of suffering, be that torments of being stuck in samsara, be that even the shortcoming of a of an arhat which only gained his personal liberation. How, how the limitation there of not having fulfilled one's own wishes fully, neither of others, is due to self-centeredness. See, we could see the connection between self-centeredness and all the thinkable torments that it entail. Likewise, think of cherishing others without exception, being the basis of all the excellent qualities. Be that in the short term or in the long term. Thinking along these lines, feel even more grateful to sentient beings, even more indebted to sentient beings, irrespective of what their individual conditions may be. Nonetheless, they do not stop being an indispensable source of all goodness there is. Thus, as a way of paying back in gratitude, feel more inspired to work for the full awakening so that one would be in a position to pay, repay the kindness of all sentient beings. And working towards that end, we do not leave it to a later time, but we grip, we Seize this very opportunity of sitting together, sharing Dharma, beginning from this moment, all it takes until one becomes fully awakened. And towards that end, 
We are here gathered to share Dharma, discuss Dharma, think Dharma, so that with every passing moment, every passing minute, we grow in our spiritual awakening for the sake of all sentient beings. Yeah, I want to open this sharing with what I just said. In the Guru Puja text, we come across this statement. The self-centeredness is the doorway to all torments. Cherishing all mothers is the basis of all excellences. By reflecting on that, one feels inspired and requests for inspiration so that we could make exchanging self-fathers the core of our practice. In other words, making bodhicitta the core of our practice. So how true is that statement? Self-centeredness is the doorway to all torments, without exception. This is very I think this is very important at the same, at the same time and the thought provoking wondering whether it is it a little exaggerated or is it a true statement in that regard we can think of how if at all is self-centeredness the source of sufferings that we come across in our daily life. We often reflect on that and find self-centeredness somewhere, somewhere there in the corner of the mind and making that unpleasant feeling happen or what seem like insurmountable, insurmountable problem upon us. And how when we become self-centered, our own space becomes constricted, crowded, and we have hardly any room for consideration of others, and also hardly any room for thinking openly, expensively, meaningfully. What about the negativities, negative actions that we engage in? Those are all done in relation to others, which means we are trying to prevail over them with our own impulses, wants, like that. And that's quite indicative of self-centered attitude being there behind all those actions against others. There is a level level of prioritizing oneself or others it's amazing how self-centeredness could be in all of these usually I understand self-centeredness which is much talked about from the Bodhisattva practice point of view as 
the stumbling block in the way to generate bodhicitta, which prioritizes others. Yet self-centeredness is so creepy and crafty in coming in any different forms, some with explicit expression of that prioritization, some without, yet at the same time, at the core, holding self-interest over others. That is self-centeredness, if not. Or otherwise, what could that be? Likewise, self-centeredness is definitely behind our being stuck in samsara. We are stuck in samsara because of the afflictions. Not because of the not just because of the karma, but more so of the afflictions. Karmas would have no way to push their push through their way if there were no afflictions to generate them, to support them, to germinate them. And these afflictions generated against others in relation to oneself. By the way, when we become angry, when we are not satisfied, we are sulking, etc., etc., those are all due to something being wrong with me, something being, something being unsatisfactory for oneself. And thus the focus is always towards oneself. So much so that in the lower tenets, all they thought of as the root of samsara or the root of afflictions is self-grasping, not self-grasping in the understanding of the prasanka, prasangika madhimika, but self-grasping at, the, at all the, at the level that is shared by all the rest of the tenet schools. Namely, grasping at a self that is substantially self-sufficient, which assumes some position of control over the aggregates. And that's because, and, and they do not look beyond that into, into even thinking of whether grasping has something to do, grasping, grasping at something on the rest of the phenomena, they don't think of that. They don't think that there is any necessity to look further than our way of looking at ourselves in relation to our aggregates. And thus they do not make presentation on selflessness or emptiness of phenomena as such. There's no such thing at all. Because for them, it seems like that grasping, mistaken grasping itself is at the root because whenever we generate afflictions it's all due to how things relate to me, how things affect me. It's all in relation to oneself. And there again the focus is to self over others. And that's usually the case for most of the sentient beings who do not see afflictions to be 
the culprit to blame in the first place. In the case of Shravakas and Prateka Buddhas who pursue individual liberation, one thing smart about them is recognizing that all afflictions are the source of problem, including grasping itself, self-sufficient, substantial self. And thus, to a great extent, they avoid being caught up in the afflictions, and at the very least see them as something to be abandoned or whatnot. But still, self-centeredness gets away to catch them, to hold on to them by way of pursuing individual liberation, just individual liberation. Whereas in the case of most of the sentient beings, it's hard to come by to recognize afflictions. And thus, with all of our afflictions, our giving in to the afflictions, self-centeredness gets its way, it's always there as a, mostly as the as the precursor, as, as the precursor to all these afflictions, saying, you come and do this for me. So, self-centeredness is surely the doorway to all the torments, to all the unwanted things, to all the dissatisfactions, both in short term and long term. And likewise, by that token, Cherishing others is the antidote. Thinking of this, one is helpless but feel grateful to all sentient beings. In extending themselves to be the object of our cultivation of genuine cherishing of others and thus undermine our self-centeredness and thus in the short term lessen our sufferings and at the same time in the long term open the prospect for this wonder of achieving the goals both of self and others. Thus it makes perfect sense in the case of the bodhisattvas to come to this conclusion, to come to this determination that, and to this sense of relaxed ease in how they are going to spend their time, spend their time wherever they may be, in whatever situation they may be, in never giving up on bodhicitta and feeling very assured that that is the best way of spending one's time. That's the best way of making the most of one's time. And in that regard, there's no concern of any time period it would take to attain full awakening. Because in the meantime, being in the bodhicitta mode of being and in engaging with sentient beings, that is as much of a reward then fully awakened, becoming fully awakened. 
because even after having become fully awakened, all the two is self sentient beings. So I just wanted to share this and make all of us ourselves think even more on this and kind of develop a sense of a sense of confidence in the efficacy of the path as well as of the prospect ahead. Okay, with with that we'll pick up from where we left last time. Yeah, we are on page 286. 286, right? And we have just that last paragraph, is it? I think. Okay, so let me read the last sentence from, or the last two sentences from the previous paragraph. Although samsara and nirvana are said to be equal from the viewpoint of their ultimate nature, emptiness, which is emptiness, on the conventional level, each has its own distinctive features. Samsara is to be abandoned, nirvana is to be actualized. So they are just being equal from the viewpoint of their ultimate nature and doesn't make achieving one or having one make us have both of them, or abandoning one make us abandon both of them. So the fact that they are conventionally different is due to the fact that they share the equal equality in terms of their ultimate nature of being totally, thoroughly contingent on conditions rather than having any intrinsic self-enclosed nature of their own. Some people may glibly say, did I say it right? Glibly. I didn't say gallically. Some people may glibly say, glibly say, samsara and nirvana are the same, good and bad do not exist, Awakening is beyond such dualistic distinctions. Yeah, the term distinction is, uh, dualism is such an excuse. Many use it as an excuse to push their point. (laughs) And likewise, someone who thinks along these lines as Nirvana, Samsara being one, and that there's no good, no bad, everything is of one taste. Because the sutra says that everything is ultimately a one taste. And thus good taste good taste the same as the bad. Samsara should taste the same as Nirvana. And then to support that they can say, Oh yeah, awakening is beyond beyond such dualistic or beyond any dualism. As unconvincing as such a statement are and at the same time, we have, we still have the danger of misunderstanding the subtle, subtle dependent origination or emptiness as presented by the Prasanghika Madhimikas in this light of 
how in the ultimate nothing matters and because of that things are conventionally existent in however way we project them to be, however way we designate them to be. So it's it's a subtle point to harmonize between the two. One is things being conventionally functional, operational in their distinct way, while at the same time their mode of existence simply boils down to being merely designated. So here, merely designated being just designated without any any extra essence or objective inherent essence of their own being contributed in their in their existence, in their being. So that part is the most difficult one to come to harmonize. And thus very often very often we are left to alternate between the two, not being able to see the same two together. We either see the appearance, not the emptiness, but or emptiness slightly, but not the appearance. We are not able to bring the two together. And on that basis, they ignore ethical conduct, they ignore taking any responsibility, all of that. This may sound well and good until they face a problem. But the moment their stomach hurts or they are criticized, these people scream, this is bad, not good. <laughs> Otherwise, in their earlier understanding, they could say it is bad, which means it is good, <laughs> but they cannot. At that time, they are faced with a reality of conventional, conventional existence, and thus have to find a conventional way out of it which they have bereft themselves of by having come to such a completely skewed conclusion of what the middle way position amounts to. So they will scream, this is bad, stop it. They may even go beyond that. They will say stop to others, but they will themselves not stop. <laughs> to avoid such dilemmas, it is important to study and correctly understand the meaning of some of the enticing, enticing phrases in the scriptures. Now today it will be our challenge to come up, come each one of us come up with two examples of enticing phrases. <laughs> I'll begin by coming up with the truth. One is not seeing is the ultimate seeing. What is the other one? It is important to study and correctly understand 
the meaning of some of the enticing phrases in the scripture. Can any of you think of any such enticing phrases that you have come across? One definitely is samsara and nirvana are inseparable. <laughs> yeah, particularly when it comes to understanding the ultimate, the middle way philosophy. It is so crucial, as much as we aspire to attain full awakening, the door to that is actualizing and first understanding, and then eventually we call that actualizing or realizing in the sense of making it a, a reality for oneself in how we perceive reality, perceive the world and interact with it. So making it a reality or actualizing emptiness. That's very crucial. Without that, the door to liberation is closed. In one of these works of Nagarjuna, he says, there is no second door to liberation than this wisdom of understanding emptiness, which is the only door to liberation. Which means, which is because liberation is liberation, and then on top of that, full awakening. They are based on total elimination of the afflictions. For that, the only potent antidote, the direct antidote, is the wisdom realizing, directly realizing emptiness. And it, it's because of that, Shantideva begins the ninth chapter on wisdom by saying, all the rest of the practices that have been talked about, explained about, those are all means to generate this wisdom of understanding emptiness. They are all aids, supports to lead to this wisdom. Because without this wisdom, all of these other practices without will be like visually impaired pe people with no one to guide them to where they should go. So this wisdom is so important and yeah, I heard His Holiness the Dalai Lama say that when one is engaging in spiritual practice, at the depth of that practice one should be as much making effort in understanding and making sense of this idea of things being utterly, thoroughly dependent. When I say utterly, thoroughly dependent, I go beyond dependence on cause, dependence on parts, because they in turn are dependent on things being lacking in their existence. If it weren't for that, their dependence on causes, the dependence on parts, would be just part dependence, not thorough dependence. And the, the dependence on causes Dependence in the causality sense, dependence in the mirrorological sense, those are all due to the fact that things are utterly, thoroughly devoid of any intrinsic objective existence for their side, which would be an obstacle in the way of any dependence. But things, things are thoroughly lacking in 
inherent existence that these dependencies on a grosser and secondary levels can happen. So this understanding of the dependence in the most subtle way is only suggesting that we should, at the depth of our practice, we should be as much paying attention and putting efforts in that, while we also deal with the immediate situations in the best way possible, that is in tune with Dharma. And there, in there comes abiding by the, say in the case, in, from the perspective of Lojong practice, from the perspective of Lambrin practice, abiding by what they call the rules, the guidance of Lojong practice. But then deep down, deep down they should all be seated or grounded on this pursuit of really tackling this subtle ultimate phenomena. So all of these myriad way of dealing with situations, immediate situations, should be situated within a grand picture or grand scheme of really constantly working in figuring out this, this, this phenomena, this reality there, and thus making it, uh, internalizing it and making it a reality within, so that one's personality and way of dealing with things would be thoroughly permeated by this understanding and, and thus be really touched, thus be able to touch just about every practice with this, with this understanding, with this perspective, so that each of these practices now begin to become what we call the super-mundane practices. Otherwise, it would all be stuck within the super the mundane practice, right? So for even the paramita practices, we all know how Chantakirti speaks of two categories, mundane paramita of giving, super-mundane paramita of giving. The determining factor is that of wisdom, understanding emptiness. And that's, that's the reason why the touch of this wisdom with any practice can lead to results far beyond samsara. Otherwise, it would just be stuck within samsara. Of course, one has to take one's time and know where one is, but there shouldn't be any any halt, any stoppage in pursuing it, in thinking of it, in making sense of it as we go along. Okay, so we'll then move on to the next one, levels of mind. Both Sutrayana and Tantrayana speak of different levels of mind. In Sutrayana, the principal factor distinguishing various levels of mind is the depth of single-pointed concentration. Beings in the desire realm have coarse states of mind. Those in the form realm Four, four form realms and four formless realms have progressively subtler, more refined states of mind corresponding to their progressively deeper states of concentration. Yeah, it's interesting in the scriptures, it speaks of how with the start of shamatha, 
one has begun to develop a, a level of mind that now belongs not to the desire but to the form realm. It's so interesting. <laughs> now you begin to have a mind of another realm. <laughs> so that's from shamatha onward, not until then. And you, we can totally relate to this statement of how from the level of from the level of shamatha above compared with all the preceding minds, those are much subtler, much refined, much more disciplined. And accessible for one's own Dharma practice, in that one could just generate it and then direct it to any object one wanted and stay in there for as long as one wanted without succumbing to any of the inserviceabilities of the mind or the body. But then, when one is generating or generating the form form realm mental states or the formless realm mental states, the for their own sake, if not for serving as a basis for other cultivation, for the sake of others, then that's a different thing. Otherwise, if these are pursued for their own sake, mainly by being uh, disgusted, with the gross levels of mind, gross more, more in the sense of minds which are engrossed with gross objects uh, of the desire realm. And thus progressively even find the form realm objects, form realm uh, phenomena as even disruptive and unpleasant, giving rise to unease, whatnot. Then they progressively go into seemingly subtler, subtler, yet yet less clearer, clearer mind. So that's this that's the particular characteristic of mundane level subtle minds. The subtler they become, the less clear they become. Whereas, in the case of pursuing the clear light mind, there the mind is the subtlest. It's the subtlest of the subtlest. There's nothing subtler than that. Yet at the same time, in terms of its clarity, it is, there's nothing above that. Besides that, it is such a state of mind that, that by its very nature, no afflictions can ever come into its space. And plus, it is said that, at least in the statements of the first Dalai Lama and his teacher, Kirtum Nosan the very, what do you call, the very perspective, the natural perspective, even of an uncultivated, uh, subtle, clear mind, kind of lends itself to a similitude of appearance that would be 
there when one understands emptiness. And thus it serves as more favorable condition in bringing emptiness in conjunction with that state of mind as an object-subject combination. So the subtlest mind in this mundane pursuit is the peak, the mind of the peak of samsara, where there is neither discrimination nor, dis- nor non-discrimination. And that's clear indication of how unclear the mind should be. It's kind of lost in almost like a lost in an almost like an insensitive, insensitive kind of a uh, cocoon for the person. Thus, none of the perception of gross material, matter or material things will will enter it, nor that of any uh, of the lesser perspectives or less, lesser cultivation, lesser minds of the even of even the formless realm, where they have completely done away with any physical material object, but have even moved further into non material, abstract objects. Thus, the, the ability of ability of utilizing it for for very meaningful pursuit like that of contracting with self-grasping, etc., is not possible. I think it is even said that for, for those in the peak of samsara, if they wanted to generate, if they wanted to, if they wanted to pursue a non-mundane, super-mundane pursuit of liberation and whatnot, they would have to revert back to a lesser, subtle mind for the basis to pursue that path. But nonetheless, these are indicative, very clear indication of how there can be so many layers of mind, how we can go deep and deep and deep and deep. And uh, it's almost like mind has unending levels within it. The subtlest mind is the peak of samsara, neither discrimination nor non-discrimination. It's almost like the person has, I, it's, it's difficult to say that they have a perception, they have a discrimination of this is this. But at the same time, to completely deny it, that would be a little difficult. So they are in such a state of almost kind of a, uh, no object, nothing, or no object kind of a state of, state of tranquility, you could call it. It's really a tranquility. Kind of keeping oneself from the disturbing states of, of course, the desire and mind. Kind of focus mainly on gross, material, physical objects. Uh, but also, 
free from the lower formerly and from the same minds. This mind is considered coarse compared with the subtlest mind presented in Tantra. Of course, compared with the subtlest mind, I should emphasize here the subtlest of the subtlest, because in the scriptures, the, even the first, even the first, even the preceding three minds before the subtlest clearlet mind uh, sets in. Even the previous three levels of clearlet mind are also considered the subtlest. So they are so subtle. And thus, so let alone this, this subtlest clearlet mind itself, but even compared with the preceding three subtlest clearer mind, this mind is considered it's much, much more coarse. In a way, uh, all the minds, compared with the subtlest clearer mind, all the, all the other minds are even, not only coarse, but even called adventitious or temporary. We call that lobo. Loburwa, it comes and goes and comes and goes, not having the not having the capacity of kind of sustained existence. Whereas the subtlest clearer mind is the only one that has an unsavoring, sustained existence, be that in a manifest form or in a dormant form. But nonetheless, the stream is never ever savored. And that's that's the very underlying mental condition of all sentient beings. And based on that, we speak of attaining full awakening with the, with the capacity of ever being present since then. Because their whole existence is now fully operational, fully active, and fully, yeah, fully, fully active, fully sustained, just on the basis of the subtlest clearer mind and its accompanying wind energy. Nothing grosser than that. And that basis, that true basis, has no birth, no death. And it's a sustained existence. And, and from that point of time, when one has attained full awakening, that means riding on that subtle, subtlest mind and, and energy from that onward in the Buddha woods. Thus the Buddha would once again is never lost. And thus and then based on how the mind and the body combination is solely and exclusively based on those two substratums of the mind and the satellite mind satellite mind it has much more capacity than we can ever imagine in a mind-body combination that we are familiar with. Um, and first of all, to understand, that, to see if I have this correctly, but my understanding is that every moment of mind must have an object in order to exist. That it has every moment of mind has an object. Yeah. So if that's true, mm -hmm. then I'm trying to understand what, at the subtlest level of mind. 
for an ordinary being who can't train their mind on emptiness as their object, what is the object of that extremely subtle mind? At the very least, it has this, its own appearance. Its so own, even that has an appearance? Pardon? Even the cl- subtle clear light mind itself has an appearance? Yes, yes, yes. It's, it is accompanied by its own corresponding appearance, at the very least. Like with the case, like is the case with the preceding satellite light mind. They are accompanied. Their arisal is accompanied by a particular inner appearance at the very least. And then the effort is through practice to, to bring in emptiness or other objects deliberately. And not just that, uh, generating the, the subtlest clear light mind itself, not just waiting for its natural uh, re- arising, but kind of be able to generate it on other occasions where one would have more say in its coming and going. And whereas at the time of death is the only time when, is, is one time when it would naturally set in, and thus one doesn't have to make extra effort, and one is kind of waiting to make most of it while it happens on its own. Whereas the more preferred way of employing it on the path is by being able to deliberately, intentionally activate, activate it through different means. Yeah, one thing I was bringing up last time was, okay, yeah, we finished one paragraph, right? <laughs> one thing I was trying to bring up was that in the Prasangika Madhimika system, the ultimate reality it not, is not just constituted of emptiness, but also of the cessation. Cessation, right? And because of that, there is this, this debate, discussion, unsettled, better off not settled even, <laughs> that whether or not cessation is in itself an emptiness. One, because of, being, because of its being ultimate reality, unlike any other school, any other school, school of thoughts below Prasangika Madhyamika is the only one which says, which proposes, which, which uh, upholds this position that not only emptinesses but also cessations, when they are attained, they are attained within that, within that state of equipoise. When the equipoise state is a, a range of kind of a, a sustained uh, experience of direct understanding of emptiness, uh, which can be divided into two in terms of the first period called the uninterrupted, right? Uninterrupted uh, being in the in the actual action of counteracting the affliction, the corresponding affliction, corresponding uh, object of abandonment. And then at some point it will be able to overcome it. It will be able to completely eliminate it. From that on, 
while the person is still in immerse in that experience of equipoise, uh, it, it marks from that point onward uh, the person onward a shift in the nature of that uh, equipoise experience in that from that point onward it is called the post uninterrupted equipoise uh, what? Yes, yes, liberated, 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 liberated path within that equipoise. Yes, if I use the term post, there's this danger of mistaking it for the for the sequential, yeah, post equipoise state. Yeah. So, at that point of entering into the liberated phase of that equipoise experience, there is an additional object now appearing in the in the eye of that equipoise. Now, not only emptiness gives appearing, emptiness rather of all phenomena without exception, but additionally, the aspect of that cessation begins to appear. And because of that, the cessation which has just set in has also uh, begun to be the object of that equipoise. It is called an ultimate reality because it is now a reality in the face of an ultimate consciousness and understanding emptiness directly. Now the question is, why in the first place a cessation when attained should appear? What has a cessation to do with that? I mean, it could have been just attained, but not enter into that perspective. Why does it? So here, the understanding is, as much as counterintuitive it may sound, which is, which is what it does to me, <laughs> the claim is that when the defilements are purified, it is purified on the emptiness of the mind. Which means, in other ways, which means emptiness gets purified. So the emptiness of the, un, of, of the defiled object and the emptiness of an undefiled object. Which means the object has to be mind. So on the basis of a mind, we could speak of something, one mind being defiled by, say, a say, the gross, grossest affliction. That's, let's say, for the sake of convenience, without trying to get the technical name, which is long. So, so undefiled, or defiled mind, say, defiled mind in the sense that until we attain we attain the path of seeing, the mind is defiled. As much as we may have made effort in purifying our mind, etc., in one sense it's still defiled in that not a single affliction, not a single level of affliction would have been rendered irreversible by that time. So thus, 
none of irreversibility has ever attained in relation to any, just about any level of afflictions, and thus it is defiled. And then the moment we attain the liberated path of the seeing, then one has eliminated the first batch, if you say the first pool, the first batch of afflictions, which is the grossest one at the time during the path of seeing. So that's when the mind becomes related to the prior one, it becomes undefiled. Undefiled by the affliction that has been completely abandoned, rendered irreversible. So along with the mind, which is the basis of the emptiness, of course, in, within the there is no distinction seen or not. All of the emptinesses are seen. But, but since the work is done within the individual person's mental continuum, the, the process of purification takes effect in, in clarifying, in, 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 in clearing, in cleansing that corresponding affliction from the mind, mind stream of that person. And because of that, the mind stream of being purified, the emptiness of that mind stream also gets purified. So, uh, how do we make sense of this? I try to come to this, though I still have challenges. I, st- I, I try to come to that by the fact that, that by the fact that unlike in the other school of thoughts, here in the Prasangika Madhamika, they have gotten their hand on the on the unmistaken subtleness nature of phenomena. And the afflictions are rooted in the grasping at the inherent existence as understood by the Prasangika Madhamikas. So their grasp of what is the root of the afflictions, what is the root of the sufferings, what is the root of the afflictions, be that of any level of afflictions, what is the ultimate root of the afflictions. So they have gotten hold of that in terms of the, the grasping at inherent existence being the root. And then the antidote being applied there is also something matching with it. It is antidote in its strongest form by way of being a direct realization of nothing short of full emptiness. Because of that, there is a complete match between the root that you are aiming at and the antidote that you are applying. And then, in terms of the mechanism of that purification, it is, uh, it is interesting. In terms of the mechanism of that uh, purification process, it involves almost like thoroughly exposing, thoroughly exposing, seeing through the, the grip of that grasping. And having been executed by no a direct understanding of emptiness with its corresponding level 
strength at that level, and thus dealing with its own corresponding level of affliction, not the subtlest ones, but the grossest one. But, but as a means of striking it, it's doing so by really getting at the core of the hold of the, afflict, of the grasping. Because of that, there is this expression that when the defilement is purified, it is purified in the spare of emptiness. So it's within the spare emptiness it has to be purified. And it seems like the purification takes place something in, in, in relation to the emptiness of the mind on which it is being purified. So not only the mind becomes purified of the corresponding affliction, but it gets purified by way of being purified in the spare, within the spare of emptiness. That's why, from that point onward, the emptiness of that mind has this added quality of being purified by that corresponding affliction. So that's why when emptiness appears to that person, because of that cessation having gained, uh, that person cannot avoid seeing that aspect of the emptiness of the mind, that aspect of purification purification of that aspect of the mind. So here the, the question is, say, so, so, so here the question is, when somebody is in an equipoise, with regard, in equipoise with emptiness as its object, then it would generally see all emptinesses without exception. So then the question is, does a being at the path of seeing level see the emptiness of the mind of a practitioner more advanced than him or her? Or in other words, does that person also see the emptiness of the mind of the Buddha? If so, does he see, so, does he see that with its cessation as part of it, or not? Apparently not. Because the cessation has to be accessible only to the person who has experienced it, not to others, even though it is part of the emptiness. So the reason why some class, some, some schools, some not schools, some, not school, it is not divided along the school, school line in terms of whether that cessation is emptiness or not. It's just within the, within the advocates of the Prasangika Mahatimika. Thus, there's this division of, or the, this agreement, difference in their position as to there's no question about its being an ultimate reality and thus being seen by the equipoise uh, at that time. Uh, but in terms of whether that cessation is emptiness or not, it's because, because of these uh, apparent complications.
So that's why for those who say that cessation is not emptiness, would be able to hold on to the position that whatever emptiness is, there is, any given equipoise on emptiness can, can access it. And thus do not have to face the opposition, face the challenge of having to uphold the position of not seeing the cessation themselves or cessations of the higher practitioners, yet at the same time, the cessation being at ultimate reality, they can hold on to that position. Whereas those who hold it as emptiness, on top of being cessation, then the question about whether that emptiness is spared from being seen by anyone in equipoise, that becomes a challenge. By the way, there is a statement in Nagarjuna's text, which His Holiness very often quotes, where he comes very succinctly clear in terms of the Prasangika Madhimika's position of how afflictions arise. There he says, let on your mouth say better. Liberation is attained when one has eliminated karma and afflictions. And how do you eliminate them? Let on your mouth Karma and afflictions, they come from conceptual thoughts, for lack of a better, better term. Namdo, namartopa. By the way, we all understand namto, namto, venerable has been using it, right? So namto is its condensed form. If you want for poetic requirement, to extend it, then you can say number topa, number topa. So, karma and afflictions come from number topa, conceptual thoughts or distorted thoughts. And where do these distorted thoughts come from? They come from grasping at elaboration, grasping at fabrication, namely the fabrication of seeing things as inherently existent. And how do you attack it? How do you counteract it? It can be counteracted only by emptiness, which means understanding emptiness. So there, one way of understanding is or how I just presented that at the, at the end. Ultimately, it comes down to the emptiness to counteract it. But in how it is written in the original Sanskrit, his Holiness shares from his having received the transmission from Kunu Rama Tenzin Jensen, a great Sanskrit scholar and a Kagyu master of the previous generation. When he received it, Kunu Lama Rinpoche was also commenting on the Sanskrit original and whatnot, and also suggestions of what would be better to switch this, even the Tibetan translations. Oh, it would be better to uh, take this instrumental case away or put it here like that. But one among them was commenting on this particular stanza with regard to how it sounds in the Sanskrit original. 
in the Sanskrit original, it seems that there is room for interpreting it in two ways. One that it is one that the it is the it is the emptiness that contracts it, using an instrumental case. The other one is it is in the spare emptiness it could be abandoned or eliminated. The spare in which it, the, the the purification takes place. And his holiness very open comments that yes, that makes much deeper and profound meaning. Profound. You still have to yeah. Have the topic about whether the aggregation is the thing itself or not. I remember very clearly when I was debating in this monastery, I raised this topic because I thought that it is easy to understand the parts are not the whole. But what about the aggregation? The aggregation seems to be the whole. <laughs> if one could convincingly rule out the aggregation being the thing itself, then yes, the thing really stands out apart from the parts and the aggregates. And that leaves the thing to be very flimsy, abstract. And that, if that could be established, then one could then, it's just a matter of applying to each and everything. And all will fall in the same line. Yeah, we have run out of time. So, but it is not that convincing. I, I, part, part of the reason why I'm holding back is to wait when you will accept it. <laughs> I have a question about what you said about the liberated phase of this equipoise. That, if I understand it right, not only emptiness appears, but the aspect of that cessation begins to appear. Yes. So I thought that in meditative equipoise and emptiness, the only thing that appears is emptiness. But yeah, now, no, no more, no more in the present So, but then if you're saying that the aspect of that cessation begins to appear, is it appearing as emptiness? <laughs> so whether it is emptiness is a, is a debate, as I said earlier. It is not a. a, a a difference in position along the uh, tenet lines, but within those who uphold the Prasangika the upholders uh, differ in their position. Uh, so what they agree is that, yes, a new phenomena attached to that em emptiness begins to appear from the liberated phase, from the, lib from the point the liberated phase of the equipoise sets in. And thus, that aspect, which is the cessation, newly attained cessation, has to be ultimate reality. Ultimate reality in the sense that it is now a reality in the face of the wisdom seeing the ultimate directly. And that, that's the cessation that has, uh, that has appeared or that has happened on the emptiness of the mind itself. In, the, in a way, in the text, the text even goes to, the sense, to, to this extent saying that if emptiness of a mind cannot be purified, then all of our efforts would be fruitless. It even goes to that extent. All of our effort in purifying afflictions would be fruitless, would go fruitless, would go without any result, 
if emptiness cannot lend itself to be purified. <laughs> oh, I don't think I can go that deep. <laughs> <laughs> but what I'm trying to understand is we have this ex- we have been told uh-huh. a number of times that the only object that appears when someone's in direct meditative equipoise on emptiness is emptiness. So is this just a matter of semantics? Oh no, this is not the semantics. Because may, you may have heard this in your Parchin, Parchin in your Parchin Paramita analysis. There the main, main perspective taken is that of the Sautantrika Mahatmika. So yeah, this is, this is a shift. This is a shift. There is another shift that I will eventually share with you. <laughs> that, that I am sure you will not agree. No, even my, my experience is otherwise. <laughs> yeah, so this is. So from among the four truths, in this, in this from among the four truths, uh, not all of them are conventional truth. The first three are conventional truth, only the, th- the fourth one is cessation is ultimate truth. The question here is whether it is emptiness or not, not whether it is an ultimate reality or not. So its appearance is beginning to appear to an ultimate equipoise, uh, which realizing emptiness is not a question within the Prasangi Madhimika school. Now the question, the debate is whether it is also an emptiness. If so, then of the mind. Because they make this distinction between emptiness of a mind, which is defiled, emptiness of a mind, which is undefiled. And, and that of the undefiled one has the aspect of purification. And that appears with the emptiness to that mind which has attained, to that person who has attained cessation. But the question here is whether it is an emptiness or not. But His Holiness seems to prefer this. Very often, yeah, he would comment on this in the teachings. Despite the fact that he belongs to Depung, where none of the colleges uh, accept this as emptiness. <laughs> their, their monastic texts all explicate that oh, it is not emptiness. Because if it were to be emptiness, everyone would have Everyone would have to have attained liberation without effort. That's another extreme that they're pointing to. Okay, let's leave it there. <laughs> That's a good enough note to stop, to attain full awakening without any effort needed.